This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much for coming and thank you very much to Kirsten and the rest of the RSC team for the invitation to speak. I'm very happy to speak at this seminar. Um, I have predictably prepared too many notes, um, so I'm going to try and go reasonably quickly um, in order not to use up all the time that we have. Um, I've actually forgotten, Kirsten, how long you said that it's optimal to speak for. About three quarters of an hour? Yeah, yeah. Bit longer. Fine. Okay, just wave at me if I'm going on for too long because I tend to be a bit, a bit hopeless. So just um, by way of kind of explanation or situating this paper a little bit, um, the title, as you can see, is Opportunities and Risk in Acting Sociocultural Transformation in Refugee Camps in Uganda. And the idea of social change is something that I've been working with and sort of playing around with for quite a long time. Um, the particular angle that I'm taking in relation to this paper vis-à-vis opportunities and risk has come out of a reasonably long-term now discussion between a group of people working in a number of different situations of forced migration. Hello, I've just recognised you. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, And that's a project or a series of projects which relate um, broadly to the idea of uncertainty in the social sciences and how we can kind of come to think about uncertainty in ways which are productive in the context of forced migration. Um, And a group of us did a series of linked panels at the um, European Association of Social Anthropology conference um, last year along those lines and some of us are continuing with that work. So I'm quite interested in that as a kind of a broader context um, and be happy to talk a bit more about that. Um, at the end of this time and if people are interested so that's kind of it that's where I'm coming from when I'm thinking about opportunities and risks in in ways that I hope that I'll kind of go on to explain Um, I'm starting off with the idea of uncertainty and thinking about what kinds of phenomenon that produces in the context of forced migration and in some cases more broadly and in other contexts as well so I'm starting off with a premise um, which is that I mean I think a sort of fairly uncontroversial one which is that displacement creates uncertainty and upheaval for the people who are affected by it and it's unsettling and challenging practically in really obvious ways in terms of security, livelihoods legal political status and all of their kind of associated um, experiences but that it's also likely to have consequences for refugees and other forced migrants in relation to their social and existential understandings and well-being Um, and that's in a sense what I'm particularly interested in or at least what I'm interested in is the way that those two elements intersect with each other so it necessarily um, invites a response and action from forced migrants in diverse ways and at a number of levels simultaneously. So what I want to ask are, well, what are the consequences of uncertainty specifically for forced migrants? And the idea of this paper is to explore the concept of uncertainty in relation to experiences of forced migration, asking how it's constructed and understood and how it then relates to linked categories. And I won't necessarily have time to do much of that today. But thinking about, okay, well, what does uncertainty oppose? You know, what is certainty in the context of anybody's life and in the context of forced migration, but also in relation to risk, opportunity, social change, these kinds of things. And the main argument of the paper and of the presentation is that forced migration produces upheaval, which generates a number of risks for individuals and groups, and that this context can be seen as fertile ground for those individuals or subgroups within the wider group who are able um, to turn risk into opportunity via a process of transformative social activity. Now, evidently, that's a very complicated process, or it's likely to be, in which for from a research point of view, it's a bit of a nightmare because causality is incredibly difficult to kind of fix or to pin down, um, certainly to kind of demonstrate empirically. But it's also an uneven process, and this is, as far as I'm concerned, crucial too, um, in which some individuals are better or worse placed to benefit from the opportunities which might be achievable depending on their status, networks, who 
who they are within a community and so on. So the paper sets out to identify through ethnographic insights the particular ways and contexts in which uncertainty is constituted for people as a limiting or as a liberating phenomenon um, and specifically in the case of my research in, in the context of experiences of some Sudanese refugee groups that I've been working with in Uganda for a long time. I started research in refugee settlements in Uganda in the mid-1990s, um, did a sort of a substantial ethnographic um, study for my my default and have gone on to kind of return to those communities and to related communities in Uganda um, over the years quite quite frequently, um, most recently last year um, when I was back in Kiriandongo, which is the settlement I'll be talking mainly about. So I'm exploring the linkages between what I'm going to call the uncertainty contexts uncertainty context, sorry, and the risks ex experienced and managed in various ways by refugees in this setting. And I'm going to be arguing that refugees creatively exploit opportunities to redefine and develop social relations and practices leading to social transformation in exile. And I'm quite aware that this is not you know, rocket science in the sense that I'm not saying anything particularly um, controversial or groundbreaking here. What I hope I'm able to contribute um, based largely on the kind of the long-term involvement I've had with the communities that I've been working with is partly a, a better sense of precisely what social mechanisms and modalities are employed to make these things happen, which of course is precisely the sort of thing that takes more than 45 minutes to describe and I therefore won't be able to fully kind of explain, um, you know, but I'm happy again to talk about it in the discussion period. Um, and also to go back to what I said in passing at the beginning to, to try and give some sense of how you know the kind of basket weaving end of anthropology as it's frequently dismissed as can actually be of fundamental and integral importance to people who are working on refugee policy and at the harder end you know the legal status, the political kind of frameworks, the refugee policy, all of those kinds of things so I'm kind of banging the usual drum which is to try and bring those things together and show how they interact with each other, how experiences of one of those sets of phenomena are really substantially um, affected by the other set, if you like. So hopefully that will come out in some of what I'm saying. So as I've said, the empirical basis for much of the argument advanced here is research material gathered, gathered over many years, at the, specifically at the Kiriandongo refugee settlement in northern Uganda. Um, and this is an absolutely terrible map, I realise, but broadly that's Uganda and Kiriandongo sort of looks... In, on the map as if it's in the middle um, although it sort of counts politically as northern Uganda um, you can see a scattering of these little triangles which are obviously refugee um, settlement sites across northern Uganda um, and Kiriandongo is notable for being nowhere near them and the reason, I mean I'll come to the reason why it's where it is but it's quite explicitly in a place which has been physically secure during the period of insecurity in northern Uganda and that's um, been highly significant so I'll talk about that in a second um, this has been a context of protracted exile Kiriandongo itself has been in existence since 1992 many of the people who lived in it for a decade or nearly two in some cases arrived in Uganda in 1992 so their exile has been extremely protracted um, and I'll go on to sort of sketch that out what I want, the point that I want to make here is that in the context of protracted exile individual refugees and groups have necessarily to navigate a perpetually shifting political conflict and aid context and in this case they were seen to take action to protect themselves and to advance life projects in a whole number of ways at different times in different contexts and so on um, and because things changed a lot over the period of time necessarily that they were refugees and even, even if they were living predominantly in a single refugee um, settlement in this case um, I want to sort of sketch out some of the different phases if you like of their experience in Kiriandongo and in that kind of refugee hosting um, context so Probably the most important thing to say, um, and obviously this is going to be very whistle-stop, is that the experience of exile for Sudanese refugees in Uganda from the late 80s for the following effectively two decades was extremely varied. And for many of the older people who came as refugees, even as long ago as 20-odd years ago, 
this was frequently their second or third period of exile. So this was a population who, in many cases, was really well used to being um, in exile, had had experience of international assistance before, kind of knew the score as far as what it meant to be a refugee living in Uganda was concerned. Um, as you know, the conflict in what was then Sudan and is now South Sudan sort of ebbed and flowed. It was a chronic conflict in which there was massive civilian displacement, massive civilian disruption and suffering. Um, for almost two decades, up to a quarter of a million Sudanese people spent year after year living in Uganda in and around government gazetted refugee settlements where Ugandan refugee policy required them to live. So there was not a free choice for refugees living in Uganda as to where they should stay. The government identified refugee settlements which was their um, required location. And it was only very, very much more recently in the history of Uganda's refugee hosting that it has become permissible and legitimate for refugees in a non-shadowy kind of sort of a way to move to urban centres under some circumstances. Still not possible for everyone. So life in rural settlements scattered along the Sudan-Uganda border meant um, life in a context of insecurity because it won't have escaped your attention that this was the period of the Ugandan um, internal conflict um, and where there was um, insurgency, where there were military attacks, where there was out-and-out fighting taking place in northern Uganda. In many cases, the refugee camps and settlements were drawn into that. And in some cases, it was a question of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and in others, it was a question of the fact that the political economy of the conflict in northern Uganda drew in the Sudanese, drew in the refugee settlements, and in some cases, settlements were quite deliberately and specifically targeted, and there's quite a lot of evidence um, that that was the case. So a lot has happened over the period of time, clearly. It's possible, um, I think it's possible to some extent to kind of draw out different phases of, ex of refugee um, experience of exile in Uganda, which you know obviously map onto the kind of the politics and what was happening over periods of time. For the settlement at Kiriandongo, I think one can identify a series of different phases. The first five, four or five years of the settlement were fairly lively in terms of international involvement and the engagement of aid actors. There were quite a lot of different aid organisations involved. UNHCR was quite active. It had a number of implementing partners who were rolling out services in the settlement. So it was quite a kind of a, an aid-active environment. In addition, there, were, there, were, there was significant interest from some of the embassies in Kampala who initiated funding for specific income-generating projects and other kinds of things. So there was quite a bit of money and attention floating around in those first few years. As the decade went on, the government increasingly became involved with UNHCR in developing the idea of the self-reliance strategy for refugees in Uganda, which you've probably um, come across quite a lot um, and as refugees experienced the self-reliance strategy what it effectively amounted to for them was substantially a withdrawal of aid and of interest and an attention in terms of the kinds of activities that were taking place in the refugee settlement um, and of course this is an enormous area which is highly contested, so I'm not going to attempt to summarise it. Um, but in terms of what the camp looked like, who was there, who was operating, things changed quite a lot. Ironically, it was when a different refugee settlement at Acholpi in northern Uganda was attacked, attacked by the LRA in 2002 that the aid business came back to Kiriandongo because most of the people who fled from Acholpi ended up um, fairly quickly in Kiriandongo where they were hosted by co-ethnic um, refugee hosts, so the refugees at Kiriandongo became the hosts of the new refugees some of whom were related to them and the aid business came back and services started up again so the aid kind of industry reappeared in the context of Kiriandongo as you'll probably know in 2005 a comprehensive peace agreement was signed in Sudan bringing an end at least at that stage to conflict in Sudan and signalling the possibility of repatriation or at least some other form of durable solution for the large numbers of refugees and outside Sudan and for IDPs within the country. So again in terms of the kind of political attention and the aid attention paid to Kiriandongo in the post-2005 period, it was really very clear that interest was being pulled out of Kiriandongo and other settlements like it in Uganda and redeployed to thinking about post-conflict work in the context of Sudan and focusing attention on work preliminary to the um, referendum on secession, um, which took place, and as you know, you all know, South Sudan became Africa's newest state in 2011. So, 
there is no way that it's possible to sort of sketch or gloss or summarise in one kind of go what it was like to live as a refugee in Kiriandongo because even the, the context, you know, the political and the aid context changed massively up and down in a non-linear way during that 20-odd year period. So it, there was really kind of significant variation. It makes a very big difference. Um, you know, who, who and when and where you're talking about effectively. Um, at its peak, the refugee settlement numbered... Well, actually, I was going to say it numbered 14,000, and, and with the exception of the actual P population, that's true, but when they descended, it went up to 26,000. That was a kind of a, you know, an anomalous kind of un- exceptional period, which lasted about a year. Um, so with the ab- in the absence of the actual P population being hosted in Kiriandongo. The population went up to about 14,000. Obviously, numbers were contested there, as they nearly always are in refugee camps and settlements. Um, the population of Kiriandongo was multi-ethnic, um, although dominated by a single ethnic group, which is the Sudanese Acholi population. Um, there were also related peoples who were not Acholi, who kind of interacted fairly comfortably with them and then a small minority of people who came from other parts of South Sudan which is to say not eastern Equatoria um, and in some cases from ethnic groups which were less kind of obviously aligned politically and socially with the Acholi so although it was multi-ethnic it was predominantly an Acholi context in terms of the kind of the social dominance and in terms of the kind of social and cultural um, kind of face that was projected, if you like, in terms of kind of popular culture, dancing, singing, you know, that kind of activity. So what was it like even for the Acholi in the settlement? Well, as I've already suggested strongly, it, it, it changed significantly during the period of time. The question of um, you know, the, the question of the extent to which the, con- the changes in the context were translated into um, changes kind of internalised and incorporated by the refugee populations, I think it's quite a tricky one to answer because it sort of speaks quite directly to a question about the extent to which the kind of the formal structures of aid and aid provision and of refugee protection and management, if you like, are themselves at all internalised. It's certainly been the case for me over years and years that one of the things that has most surprised me, in a sense, about international interventions in refugee settings is how little they're discussed or how little they seem to be very, very high on people's list of priorities to talk about, to kind of engage with, if you like, and how much more important many, many other kind of factors are and projects and you know initiatives that people are involved in individually or in groups or in the context of military objectives or in the you know in the context of everything else if you like um, so it's a bit again the, the, this question of causality I think from an empirical point of view um, is a very difficult one to answer the other thing of course when one's thinking about an uncertainty context and about kind of rapid social change which takes place in the context of forced migration is that one has to ask oneself to what extent it was the case that people in their pre-flight lives didn't experience change significantly or weren't living in places where the context changed a lot you know for various reasons to do with conflict long term or to do with other social and political dynamics and obviously it's incredibly important not to kind of assume too much a nice kind of flat static relatively peaceful environment followed by whack people have become refugees now everything's up in the air so there are quite a lot of questions which arise even at this preliminary stage how different is it for people when uncertainty and upheaval come along in the form of forced migration? How different is it for them from their pre-flight experience with respect to the question of how quickly and in what ways things are changing for them as populations? And then kind of rapidly moving on to ask, well then what are the best ways for people to manage the uncertainty which is kind of coming along with experiences of forced migration? What are the best ways to plan, to strategize, to kind of maximize opportunities and so on? And do people have any real way of being either confident or any grounds for kind of serious skepticism that the kinds of changes that they're experiencing, that they're even generating themselves in the context of exile, are going to sustain in the context of whatever durable solution ends up 
being theirs, if you like, particularly clearly in the context of um, protracted exile. So in the full paper, I go on to discuss some aspects of the theoretical relationship between certainty and uncertainty as it bears on contexts of forced migration and talk a bit more to some of those kinds of questions. And in brief, I'm, I suggest that the notion of uncertainty is connected to processes of social transformation via the differentiated responses to the idea of risk and opportunity in refugee settings. Subsequently, and in a sense what I'm going to try and focus on in, in this presentation and in relation to ethnographic material, I discuss refugee responses to the uncertainty context at the Kiriandongo settlement, trying to show the way that social as well as material consequences of uncertainty impact on refugees and the way in which social transformation is one response to this. Um, and I'm arguing that the positionality of social actors is, is highly significant um, to this process. So let's move then through kind of the risk precipitated by uncertainty and from there to what does it take for which members of the population to be able to transform that risk into opportunity um, in the context of an environment which is sometimes more and sometimes less enabling but in any case continually kind of moving if you like. So in a context of uncertainty, different people will see and experience threats or risks to their well-being from different sources. And what these are materially and objectively will depend on the people or subgroups identifying or constructing them. I think we can take as more or less as read that negative risks concern losses of various kinds and relate to people's capacity, resilience and prospects for overcoming or transforming them. And positive risks refer to the opportunities people can identify and take when conditions are conducive or enabling to allow them to maximise their livelihoods, social, emotional and other pro um, projects. So if you set it out like that, it should be clear that the extent to which individuals or families are able to mount a response will depend very much on their own characteristics and on their own interpretations. So there's a sense in which there's a kind of a mutual construction, or sorry, I should say a reciprocal construction going on. So to take an extremely simple example, the recognition of an upcoming period of food shortage in a refugee context may be an entirely negative phenomenon for a family too poor to do anything about it. They can see it coming, but it doesn't help them if you like to have advance notice of it. On the other hand, for a family with the resources or contracts to mobilise a trading opportunity out of a situation of food shortage, you know, a temporary food shortage or whatever, there may be a, a livelihood opportunity inherent in that risk. So that's sort of fairly straightforward. So in the refugee context, we can usefully ask questions about the extent to which and ways in which individuals and groups are exposed to risks emanating from the experience of forced migration and the extent to which these run hand in hand with opportunity. And part of this inquiry revolves around the recognition that those well connected in the local knowledge economy, people who either know directly or have access to important and useful information or networks and resources and so on, are able to mobilise this as one characteristic of their ability to turn risk into opportunity. So one of the fundamental characteristics of forced migration, obviously, is that it precipitates social changes in refugee societies, and there's been a vast amount of really kind of effective work carried out um, by a number of people, including several in this room, um, who have you know, really kind of set out in very interesting ways how that happens. It's notoriously difficult, obviously, in any single case to ascribe causality for social change to forced migration, and this is an endless problem, and which is why I'm kind of coming back to it and back to it. Inevitably, a number of factors are at play as change happens. And in fact, it, in, in any case, makes most sense to understand change. Social change is a predictable and kind of quote-unquote normal part of social life and reproduction, as, you know, John Davis and Peter Louisos have been writing for years and for decades. But there are two things, I think, which immediately kind of arise. Firstly, the fact that in the immediate context of displacement, it's very likely that the disruption to people's everyday lives will be substantial and that it's likely to be experienced as change which needs to be managed to them, i.e. which they need to make a response to, not something which they're kind of passively watching happen to them, if you like, but something in which they're engaged. And secondly, as exile extends, perhaps becoming protracted, sociocultural changes are visible as displaced people accommodate themselves to their new environments and make choices about how they choose to live in them given structural constraints. So 
As far as the Sudanese are concerned, the premise of this paper is that the uncertain and changing environment that Sudanese refugees have inhabited in Uganda over many years has presented them with continual choices to be made in relation to their protection and livelihoods, and also in relation to their emotional and psychological and social values and priorities. And to this extent, the link between uncertainty and social transformation is understood to be navigated by refugees' responses to what they see as the specific risks and opportunities that they face in exile. From an analytical point of view, these processes are difficult to untangle because it's hard to know how explicit that kind of decision-making is as people are going along. And we, all, we all know that as social actors, we, we operate in ways which are sometimes in which our own decision-making is kind of muted to us at the time, if you like. So you know, how, it's, how, in it, how um, explicit that is is um, not always clear. Um, no, what was I going to say? something I was going to say. Yeah, I think one important point, just kind of in parentheses, is, is the fact that the kinds of choices that people are obliged to make, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to kind of present myself too much as falling under the kind of the general rubric of rational choice in the sense that, I mean, I think it's fairly you know, self-evident that people try to do the best combination, they try to make choices which lead to the best combination of outcomes for them. I'm not arguing that they're kind of sitting down and making very kind of calculated um, you know, formulas or whatever on the basis of which they're acting. But also, and really importantly, I think in the context of forced migration or other kind of conflict-affected social environments, I think it's really clear that people have to make kind of difficult choices, um, not, you know, a la George Osborne, but actually difficult choices where they have to pay off in their mind, whether explicitly or not, you know, protection over livelihood or, you know, family over short-term over long-term or whatever it is. And they're quite often they're having to make choices which are kind of bad choices for themselves in some respects, but they never the less are obliged to make them because it meets some other need which is more pressing or you know whatever for which there are other kind of arguments if you like okay so what about the Kiri Andongo uncertainty context let's try and or I'll try and move kind of fairly rapidly towards the situation towards a point where I'm able to kind of discuss in a bit more detail precisely some of the things that some of the decision making um, dilemmas that Refugees at Kiriandongo have been faced with over the years and some of the social mechanisms that they've employed to respond to them. There are a number of things which probably already obviously have characterised the uncertainty context in, in Kiriandongo. I'm sure I've got some slides I'm sure it's supposed to have been showing at this point. This is the signboard off the main road um, to the settlement at Kiriandongo. It's quite interesting that in the, in the first few years of the settlement, um, there was no signboard at all. At that point, refugees were kind of much more, you know, people were a bit edgy about refugees and the government wouldn't have a signboard. And when UNHCR tried to put one up, the government took it down. And, and then for the next few years, there were loads of signboards because people kept taking down other people's and putting up their own. So the government put up a signboard with the government logo and then the, you know, the UNHCR took that down and put up their one. And then one of the NGOs did the same and whatever. But anyway, now it's kind of, that's what's there at the moment. Um, yeah, this is what I was going to come to. Okay, so the uncertainty context. First of all, you know, self-evidently, when refugees started moving from Sudan, the south of Sudan, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, they were moving from a massively less developed context, national context, to a, a more developed one. Even at that time, Uganda was significantly more developed than um, southern Sudan was. And that has kind of massively kind of accelerated over the last um, couple of decades so that Uganda is now kind of practically unrecognisable um, in some ways it, compared to how it was 20 years ago and certainly the ways in which um, Sudanese refugees encounter the Ugandan state I think and the kind of the governance mechanisms and structures uh, are much more kind of visible, legible, you know, broadcastable in a way. So I think that there's an engagement both with the state and also with the non-state sector, with the kind of the world of business and entrepreneurialism and so on, which is utterly different um, for them than has been the case in when they were living in, in South Sudan. Probably the most kind of pressing, different at different, at different stages in the history of people's refugee experience, but nevertheless 
incredibly pressing in different ways at different times has been the question of security, which you can almost not disassociate from the question of livelihoods for refugees in Uganda over this period. Um, the, the kind of nexus between security and what it was possible for people to do for themselves in terms of trying to make a living um, it is, you know, incredibly kind of complex but massively significant. Um, and, you know, when you think about people having to make kind of good stroke bad choices for themselves, this is one of the obvious areas that one can point to. Um, certainly during the, 19, the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the ways that it was possible to maximise your economic um, advantages as a refugee was to be willing to either trade or even just move in order to pick up food distributions and so on from refugee camps and settlements in northern Uganda that were in the LRA-affected area from places that were outside the LRA-affected area. Because, you know, if you're willing to kind of take the physical risk of getting on a bus which goes on a road which is frequently hit by the LRA ambushes, you can be pretty sure that whatever you put on the bus at the beginning of the journey is going to be worth more when you get off it, having not been ambushed at the end of the journey. So then, you know, the risks, the payoff is clear. Um, there was also a significant issue as far as livelihood was concerned in this respect um, for very large numbers of Sudanese refugees who were allocated um, to refugee camps and settlements in what they perceived, perceived and what were objectively fairly dangerous parts of northern Uganda in the border area affected by LRA attacks and so on, and who chose to move from those camps and effectively make themselves unregistered refugees and therefore no longer eligible to receive food rations and other kinds of social services support um, because they had moved themselves to places that they considered to be physically safer. So you, in some cases what people did was move unregistered to, to, to live in places that they considered to be safer and then maybe one person from an extended family would shoot up once a month to collect the food rations, taking that risk that I've just mentioned. Or they would just give up the ration in order to be somewhere that was safer but then they lived in a place which was okay not about to be attacked by the LRA but where they now had no source of income whatever they had no land officially allocated to them, they had no food distribution, they had no card which showed them to be eligible for social service provision and so on and so forth so that clearly is a very significant payoff this brings us to the third element of the, the kind of Insecure, the uncertainty context, I suppose, which relates to aid, which, you know, despite all of the very kind of shiny project documents which we are all familiar with, was for many of the people that I knew over a 15-year period, almost entirely inexplicable in its arrival, departure, you know, and all the rest of it. Again, I mean, I won't labour the point, and of course it was not the same for all members of the population. There were some people who were much more kind of you know, able to translate agency language and information flows and all the rest of it and had some sense of what was going on. But it nevertheless remained the case that, in my experience, there were very large numbers of people who really didn't quite have a clue why they were receiving aid, if they were receiving it, why they stopped receiving it, if it didn't come anymore, and so on and so forth. So in terms of, you know, absolute confidence that one has control and understanding and information about what kinds of inputs can be relied on, it seems to me that aid was not necessarily one that you could count in in that way. Linked to the question of the extent to which aid could be relied on, and of course a number of other things, was also the question of the extent to which one could rely securely on the social and political relationships which refugees were able to establish over time. Now, that's, you know, that's the case there are questions about that in relation to sort of political and legal relationships. You know, as a refugee, how do I exist vis-à-vis -vis the state? Is my refugee status going to last? Most uh, the Sudanese refugees um, got prima facie refugee status, so they didn't have to make individual applications for status determination. But you know, as the political scene changed, you know, for example, in a, in the period I can't even remember when it was now, which is really really bad, um, when President Museveni was trying to set himself up for a third term as president, which wasn't constitutionally possible until he changed the constitution to make it possible. The refugees were quite nervous that if he didn't succeed in doing this and a new president came in, their status and you know all of the decisions which had been made might be overturned and things could change really significantly. So at a structural level, those kinds of questions um, were very pressing for people. But also at the local level, you know, what kinds of social, economic, familial, other sorts of relation, is it possible to negotiate with the hosts living around the refugee settlement? Well, that is to a very large extent contingent on the extent to which that, that host population, which in the case of Kiriandongo was massively diverse and, you know, kind of quite complicated. I can talk about it um, 
later if you're interested. Um, but there were very, very big differences, I think, in the kinds of relationship which were available for people between those different groups in time periods or in phases of time when aid was being delivered quite substantially within the refugee settlement and at times when it wasn't. You know, the extent to which the refugees were seen as a kind of a risk and as a burden and as a threat and all of those things that we know about from the literature, um, I think you can you know, line up quite neatly with the periods of time when there wasn't very much aid being delivered in the camp. Because, of course, if there was, no, you know, there was nothing coming in, people had to go out to look for resources, to look for work, to you know, do all of the things that we know that people do. So, again, you know, there was sort of uncertainty. Just because a member of the host population, you know, member, a member or members of the host population were kind of supportive and open and generous, you know, two years ago doesn't necessarily assume mean that you can assume that they will still be next year because a lot of other things, there are a lot of other variables, um, and obviously that has to be kind of taken into account. There's also a kind of a there's a sort of a, a discussion, I think, to be had around the whole question of identity when you're thinking about relationships in terms of the way that refugees conceptualise themselves and who they are as a group of people. They continue to think of themselves as a group of people, um, especially when they've been in exile for a very long time. Do they kind of start conceptualising themselves in terms of group membership differently? Um, are there kind of divisions within refugee populations and groups? Um, obviously, anthropologists in particular, but certainly not only anthropologists, are frequently rightly known nervous about calling refugee group refugee communities because quite often they're not communities they're people who come from different places who've been kind of bunged together for whatever reason sometimes just for bureaucratic reasons um, in a refugee camp or settlement in the case of Kiria and Dongo a lot of them did speak the same language and have some sense of themselves as a group but that's not always the case and if it's not and yet it's assumed to be clearly there can be very significant kind of implications of that um I mean, evidently, when people become refugees, as well as losing material property, lands and jobs, and, you know, they lose the political and bureaucratic know-how that goes with living in a place and knowing it well, but people also lose their familiar social environments and the ways that they're used to transacting them. Um, so from apparently prosaic work and livelihood practices to spiritual and ritual activities being forced to move changes the physical, social and symbolic environment in which people live and changes what can be done in it um, or how it's understood as a, as a consequence. And again, I really want to emphasise you know, the, the interconnection between people's social and ritual and cultural beliefs and activities and the other more kind of material livelihood and... Um, livelihood-related sorts of activities. So, for example, I mean, just to provide a bit of kind of ethnographic evidence for that, I remember a family um, where there was a young, uh, a, a young, well, actually a youngish woman who had a young family. She just specifically, she just had twins um, when I was doing my doctoral research. So, like now, you know, they're probably, I guess they're 20... 23 or something, those twins. Um, but at that point, they were babies. There was a kind of a, quite a sort of a subtle um, socio-cultural response required from the clan of the father of the babies, specifically in the event that a woman gives birth to twins, which is about kind of symbolizing. Mean, twins are a very positive thing for a Choli population, so it's partly about celebration, but it's also about recognizing the increased burden on a family at a particular time and bringing resources in and sharing the burden across clans and so on. Um, now, the problem was in this particular case that the woman's husband was a soldier in the SPLA and he wasn't there and he hadn't been there for quite some time and there was no prospect of him coming back. In fact, it wasn't, there were rumors that he'd been killed in the war and it wasn't clear that he was ever coming back basically. So there was a sort of a hiatus, the twins were born, this kind of ritual which was supposed to take place which was a very kind of important and beautiful thing but was also going to bring cash into the house didn't take place because structurally the person who was supposed to fulfil the ritual, i.e. the father of the babies and his clan members were absent and so there was this kind of hanging, okay now what happens you know because the need is still there you know the material need is still there there's a sense in which you know everyone feels better if the social event is kind of performed as well. And finally, there, were, there was quite a lot of kind of discussion about it. And in the end, um, a male, another male—I mean, it's quite predictable—but another male relative 
for reasons that are, it doesn't make sense to kind of spend time explaining now, he was kind of structurally really quite the wrong person to be doing the event, to be performing the ritual, being involved in kind of enacting the ritual. But nevertheless, he was allowed by everyone concerned to kind of stand in as the father, like for the father of the twins, if you like, so that the whole thing could go ahead, so that the other people who would ordinarily be contributing money and resources would continue, would go ahead and do those things. Do you see what I mean? So what was interesting about that to me was that a very kind of familiar and in that sense a kind of very traditional social activity was brought in as a way of dealing with a very kind of immediate problem you know which arguably was generated by the fact of conflict and forced migration and so on you know the the gap if you like between what was there and what was needed had been caused by the conflict context, bottom line. Um, but instead of just kind of throwing out that system and trying to look for a different way altogether of solving the problem, the same system was used, but it was peopled, if you like, with different individuals, which I you know, thought was rather a kind of a subtle and interesting way of, of doing things. So that's the kind of thing that I've been interested in. You know, what, are the, what kinds of sociocultural responses have been made by refugees to the kinds of challenges which are thrown at them by the experience of forced migration? Um, and the, you know, fundamentally, that means in what ways have refugees individually and collectively sought to find opportunities for survival? Um, but uh, for survival, you know, very broadly defined, yes, for material survival, for livelihoods and so on, but also to do the kinds of things that Effie Futira and Barbara Harold Bond were writing about years ago, which is to say to protect the kinds of social relationships, social practices and value systems um, which are part, of course only part, but nevertheless, you know, part of what makes people feel like they are somehow living a life. You know, they have meaning, they're finding meaning, they're making meaning in their lives and, and in their worlds. So the argument is that the socio-cultural losses um, suffered by refugees result in liminal uncertainty and throw up previously fundamental socio-cultural elements of everyday life, such as systems of social organisation, leadership structures and gender relations for reconsideration, reconstruction or reform. And individuals and groups are able to generate a new version of their social lives, positionalities and subjectivities and construct new certainties um, as they do so. And then there are questions, you know, which social relations or practices like are people going to spend, are going people going to invest in trying to protect and preserve what will they transform reconfigure and recast um, and also there's the subtlety that social and cultural losses are not always exp explicitly articulated in straightforward terms Sandra Dudley's work on Kareni refugees in Thailand I think has been very interesting on this by looking at the ways in which you know there are particular phenomenon are used, socio-cultural phenomenon are used as kind of proxies for the kinds of things which it's rather difficult to talk about, the kinds of losses that it's difficult to talk about, either because they're political or because they're too painful or for various different reasons. So I think that's really interesting. And, you know, again, going back to Peter Luizos um, and his seminal work, um, The Heart Grown Bitter, from 1981 already, you know, he very kind of effectively pointed out that the process of post-displacement sociocultural reproduction may be invisible or difficult to perceive. You know, a lot may look the same in the post-displacement period as in the pre-displacement period, but that doesn't mean that it just magically reproduced itself. It only looks like that because people have been effectively kind of killing themselves to arrive at that point, if you like, and they've made choices in order to kind of get there. In the context of the um, of the Acholi in Kiriandongo and more broadly, um, in Sudan and in exile, it's been clear that they haven't just abandoned their kind of social, spiritual and cultural modes and priorities because the material conditions have been tough. Rather, livelihood and political and legal challenges have been met in ways that are constituted by and through these important dimensions. And this refers back to some work done by Wendy James um, last decade as well. So this may mean that groups of people take risks to agree uh, to achieve agreed social goals in new ways by transforming or reinterpreting social relationships or practices. So the, the twins ritual that I just mentioned is a case in point. But for the Acholi, I mean, it's kind of practically untranslatable, but there's a... 
there's a sense for them as there is probably for any group of people who operates kind of together in a collective that the way that you do things is almost as important as whether you do them and how you do them so in Acholi there's a word which literally translates as good mabe which is used to describe people doing things kind of beautifully properly appropriately it's got all of those different sorts of meanings and there's quite a lot of discussion within groups about whether people are behaving in that way, whether something which has taken place has been done properly and there is satisfaction, you know, if somebody is buried and, you know, somebody dies and their burial takes place, then you know, people can be absolutely kind of distraught emotionally and yet take some satisfaction that even in the context of exile they have managed to achieve an appropriate, kind of a satisfactory burial process and experience if you like. So it's not just about getting the job done, it's very very crucially about how the job gets done, you know, how you conceptualise the job and how you conceptualise the best answer to that. But what's very interesting um, when you're thinking about forced migration is that in, in this context at least, it's very, very clearly not the case that seeing things done properly or appropriately in cultural terms that doesn't necessarily mean seeing them done how they've always been done you know change is absolutely possible um, and transgressive behavior just as in any other context is you know always present as a possibility around the the edges of social action it's not just about you know rehearsing in a rather literal way oh that's how we've always done it therefore that's how we're going to do it now it's much much more kind of dynamic and positive and to some extent reactive than that in the sense that um, you know, people kind of jockey and try, you know, people try new things, they propose suggestions or they try to enact kind of particular activities or whatever. And sometimes they don't go down well and sometimes they do, you know. So people soon know all about it if, you know, the, the wider population doesn't think much of the way that they try to do something. And in this kind of incremental, cumulative way, social process gets built, I think. I mean, I think you can kind of see um, that happening. So... I think the whole question of transgression, which I don't really have time to go into in much detail here, um, is quite an interesting one because, you know, there's a kind of a funny boundary which is rather difficult to put one's finger on um, at the point where something stops being kind of bold, challenging and yet incorporable and starts being not acceptable in this context. And who gets to make those kinds of decisions, those kinds of choices? Do you know what I mean? What, what kinds of hierarchies exist socially, politically and so on? Um, and how are people kind of engaging in those kinds of ways? Um, I didn't have very much time. So let me give you um, two or three examples of some of the other some of the groups of people and some of the kind of the, the, the predicaments that they find themselves in and some of the ways in which engagement is made and the, the sorts of terms that I've been um, talking about. Um, a lot of different writers have reported carrying out research in refugee settings and recognising a, a kind of a significant tension between the kinds of authority which have previously been reported as kind of normal vested in older generations, possibly in senior age set members, in male rather than female people, in formal kind of institutions, even if um, locally kind of constructed and so on. And I think absolutely similar sorts of dynamics were visible in Kiriandongo where there was very evidently a tension with respect to leadership and authority in relation to kind of generation um, and to some extent gender, although as in many places it, it had predominantly been the case that authority was about maleness in the context of um, the population living in Kiriandongo. But what did certainly happen, and this was kind of visible as something which changed over a period of time, was that in the early years of the settlement it was much more normal and obvious to see the kinds of people who were introduced as having been important people in Sudan in the pre-flight period, the people who had been either government officials or hereditary chiefs or who had some other kind of public formal role. These were the people who popped up everywhere, basically, in the refugee settlement setting. So who was the head of the parish council? Oh, the guy who used to be the agricultural extension officer in Sudan. Who was the, the, govern the elected security officer for the Refugee Welfare Council? The, the chief Lorian, hereditary chief from 
the village in South Sudan. Who was the chair of the Refugee Welfare Committee? Oh, the same person as is running the Agricultural Cooperative. You know, it was a closed shop, effectively, that's what I'm saying. And the same people, the same kinds of people, and also actually the same individuals were running everything, basically. So that was kind of in the early to mid, even heading towards the, the late 90s. Very, very noticeable, kind of 10 years down the line, that most of those formal public positions of authority have been taken on by much younger people for various reasons, for reasons um, partly to do with you know, speaking the language of, of the of the the assistance organisations of the government of you know that kind of bureaucratic administrative kind of language if you like so that's completely you know what you would expect that's what happens in a lot of different places what I find extremely interesting is the, the, the consequences within the population for the ways in which political and other kinds of relationships are kind of transacted. So one of the things that was interesting in Kiriandongo was that the elders, for a period of time, the elders were kind of wandering around more or less at a loose end, and they were feeling quite resentful. They weren't being listened to, they didn't feel that they were being deferred to. There were simultaneous processes going on whereby the social authority that they previously had involved themselves in, um, in for example, in helping to transact arranged marriages and to kind of moderate and frame social and familial life a lot of those kinds of roles were also falling by the wayside for one reason or another and so they really were feeling quite out of it and at a certain point partly in recognition of this some of the younger more kind of you know active political um, actors if you like in the settlement started feeling a need for some kind of advisory committee sort of function if you like and in the end via a number of different mechanisms an elders group was kind of convened and started functioning as this kind of advisory group and started being invited to be involved in decision making so that they were kind of connected to but not on their own exclusively responsible for public kind of management and administration and so on and for quite a long time that just kind of bubbled as a sort of a background thing and it sort of looked a bit like a compromise that was kind of not really hurting anyone but wasn't all that kind of critical until in about 2005 Five, two thousand and six, the the kind of the internal the the distribution of the population within the settlement changed a bit, and there was a, there was a fairly large increase in the number of Latuka refugees living in the settlement at Kiriandongo, and consequent to an argument basically between two military factions within the SPLA that was taking place in Sudan at that time, there was quite a serious outbreak of intercommunal violence in Kiriandongo between the Acholi and the Latuka populations, at which point, really amazing, I mean, it was really very, very interesting to see, this elders group really came into its own and suddenly it had real force and they had really kind of created... You know, the population, in a sense, collectively had created, perhaps kind of accidentally, a forum within which some of the kinds of problems that were being kind of expressed via these violent acts um, that were taking place in the settlement could at least be engaged. I mean, I'm not claiming that they were able to solve it and that, you know, it was kind of a fantastic kind of answer to intercommunal violence. But it did provide a language and a context and a, a, some sort of a mechanism for engaging, which people talked about in a very kind of appreciative and positive way subsequently. So it seemed um, an interesting... Um, it, it seemed an interesting new role for people who had been... Um, de-ranked, if you liked, in, in the normal course of events. It has to be said that... Um, it wasn't quite as the, the transfer of public power from the older generation to the younger generation was also a bit more complicated than it seems, in the sense that just because you get elected to a public position or you have a formal role or responsibility doesn't necessarily mean that the respect which used to be accorded to the elders, you know, for ritual and other reasons as well as political ones, suddenly gets translated to you. So you had this kind of weird phenomenon, for example. Serially, actually, there were several in a row youngish men who were elected as um, chairmen of the Refugee Welfare Council, which was a refugee settlement wide um, kind of representative position, which had previously been occupied by you know one of the elder statesmen type people. Um, but as I say, a series of younger men were elected to that role, and they were kind of 
in a sense, the role got de-ranked, if you like, or scaled down in terms of the authority and respect which was associated with it. So instead of being a very, very big man role, it became a kind of a secretary role, if you like. So there were still other ways that some of those other kind of political authorities and um, identities were being expressed. Now you had a kind of a refugee welfare council chairman who was sort of a gopher, sort of important. He got to sit at the big table at big events and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, you know, he wasn't really taken as seriously publicly within the, within the community. I was almost going to say within the communities then, let me say, um, as the previous incumbents had been. So there was quite a tension there. And in one case, the man was so young um, that, as is also frequently the case in the context of refugee settlements, he hadn't yet been able to afford to get married. So we had a young, unmarried man who was the Refugee Welfare Council chairman. And you know, three-quarters of the settlement just laughed when he got up to talk. Nobody was will- really willing to listen to him. And then he'd be wheeled into the coordination meetings with the agencies, and they'd be, oh, Mr. Chairman this and Mr. Chairman that. And he was totally loving it, because nowhere else did he get as much respect as he was getting in that kind of context. So, you know, things change, but then do they? <laughs> you know, I suppose it's kind of, you know, one has to kind of check oneself Um, I'm basically running out of time so I'm going to shoot through a very um, like really really quickly a small list really of other kind of you know indicators or signs of transforming social action um, and then kind of more or less leave it at that so that we've got some time for some discussion rather than banging endlessly on Um, So some examples of turning risk into opportunity. Well, I've already mentioned one, being willing to take security risks for livelihood gains. That's kind of a really obvious one. Being being in the vanguard of social innovation. Um, So, you know, being willing to gamble, for example, in the earlier days of the settlement, as a young woman, that you were going to take the scholarship which had dropped into your lap absolutely inexplicably, even though there were really serious rumbling socially and in your family about whether that was something that a nice Acholi girl ought to be doing if it meant going to a secondary school outside the settlement and, you know, the kind of aspersions that were being cast. But for some of the young women who took those chances early on, there really was a very, very significant payoff because, of course, then they became educated and then qualified, though at the, in the very early stages of the settlement there was still a bit of money floating around. Some of them managed to get university funding, having done their A-levels. So suddenly they found themselves, you know, like amongst the highest qualified South Sudanese women in the world, basically, because they'd jumped. And other people who hadn't jumped missed it because, of course, the funding ran out very quickly, and so that chance kind of didn't necessarily keep coming back, if you like, for other people in successive generations. So similarly, being kind of early adopters of new technology and skills that were brought in from outside or which people found for themselves within you know the kind of the local context which they hadn't previously been exposed to in terms of agricultural practices and activities or you know other kind of business activities um, people who jumped quickly tended to um, to benefit most um, people who somehow were able to ride the, the aid machine. You know, some people did really well out of aid, um, and there were people typically who kind of who understood well enough how the aid system worked, so that when somebody suddenly woke up and decided that you know there was going to be an ox plow project ten years after all the other aid providers had pulled their projects out, um, you know, it was frequently the same people who were in there on the receiving end of that. You know, and people, oh, so your daughter, you know got sent to school and had full funding and you're also involved in the carrot seed project and now you seem to have an ox and you know whatever who are these people where where are they you know clearly it's fairly clear what i'm implying but where are the, those kinds of skills coming those opportunities coming from okay i'm going to wind up because i've run out of time um What I've tried to do is is kind of make a case um, rather briefly about the way that one population of refugees has navigated the social, political and economic uncertainty of protracted forced migration. I'm trying to show that for the Sudanese, the Choli and for others who've spent many years living in Kiriandongo or 
similarly elsewhere, external forces relating to the conflict, security and political and aid relations of state and non-state actors have framed their experience. And although these have left relatively little space for them to assert their agency at a structural level, they've nevertheless been shown to be extremely active in making a response to the challenges that they're faced by. The turmoil and upheaval of forced migration changes everything, and these changes continue to be felt over long periods of exile, so that managing and responding to it becomes basically a full-time job for refugees. In the socio-political flux of exile, people take action individually and collectively to make a life for themselves, even if they don't know how long they're going to stay there. And there were always jokes in Kiriandongo, pretty much at any stage of its kind of... um, of its life, in which people would joke about how happily and quickly they would dump all their investments in Kiriandongo to take off to somewhere else if that became possible. You know, suddenly peace in Sudan and everyone can go home, or you know, the call comes for resettlement to the US or whatever. You know, massive investment on a day-to-day basis, but with the expectation that it will go. Um, you know, it will just be kind of let go, if you like, if if that, if other better opportunities kind of come up. So effectively, refugees are left having to live in a place on the assumption that they'll one day have to leave it without knowing when that day will come. And what they're able to learn and translate into informed action about their location of exile can help them maximise their advantages. At a practical level, this means that the mechanism which allows them under some circumstances to turn risks into opportunities is material, but it's also social. It's really hard to kind of quantify understanding a place and how it works and what you therefore need to do to make your way in that place I think. But perhaps from an internal point of view, if you look at the kind of the way that people who live within who lived within Kiriandongo for a very long period of time talk about success and failure, I think one has to come back in a final kind of conclusion to this idea of a kind of I don't, we still haven't really quite found the language, but a kind of a behavioural aesthetic, you know, the idea that how, how you live and how you enact your social relationships and how you meet your responsibilities and how you find new answers to new problems without losing sight of who you are and where you come from in some quite kind of deep way connected to identity is really kind of crucially important and they, in many cases I think people would feel that if they hadn't managed to do that as well, then anything that they had managed to do didn't have you know, as much value as all that in the end and Chris Gosden has written about um, he calls it a cultural aesthetics um, which he describes as a concerted attempt to find quote, a feeling of rightness about the world in joining correct styles of action and response and I think that really you know, this is one of the things that the refugees in Kiriandongo have sought to do and as far as I can see have really achieved um, and probably it's one of the things that they are most proud of despite all the scrambling around for political survival, for livelihoods and all the rest of it um, I think that we also have to kind of um, applaud them for the way that they've been able to do that Okay, I'm sorry it was a bit long but I'll stop there For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.